We all want to grow green, to make things as green as possible. And Tom Christopher presents a new book with the leading voices on the future of sustainable gardening, the new American landscape. Hello and welcome again. It's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Ken Drews' Real Dirt, The Garden Show. I think around 1984, I was the editor of Garden Design Magazine, and I published an article in the magazine that had the title, The New American Landscape. And back then, we thought the new American landscape was plantings of ornamental grasses, lots and lots of grasses. And that started a movement that went on for decades to grow all these wonderful, beautiful exotic grasses, some of which turned out to be a little bit invasive, and they weren't really as uh, water-wise as we were told and as self-reliant as we hoped. They are food and water guzzlers, especially if you want them to look beautiful, and uh, the plants that go with them, and it, it is a terrific look and still very popular. You can see it in the middle of highways and at the entrance of every housing development uh, uh, that I've seen in the last decade or so. But uh, it may not be the best. It certainly isn't the best thing and not the best thing, especially if you're interested in a sustainable garden or landscape. Now, you can replicate that look using native grasses, and there are plenty of them. Rick Dark in his grass book has written about grasses that are not invasive and that are local and that we can seek out. But the New American Landscape Leading Voices on the Future of Sustainable Gardening includes writers like Rick Dark and Doug Ptolemy and John Greenlee and Neil DeBall to help us have, well, no mow lawns, a new way of looking at everything to make sustainable home gardens possible. And now we're going to learn more about it from the new book's editor. I'm speaking with Tom Christopher. Tom has been reporting on gardening and environmental issues for more than 25 years. And I, to embarrass Tom, I will say that I think he's just about the best writer uh, in gardening and garden writing and, and also a journalist, a reporter. Uh, you know, some people think that we know everything about gardening and then we write books about it. But uh, you and I both think about things and then go after them and try to find out as much as we can. And I'm sure I can say for myself that I learn about what I'm writing about. And when I'm finished, yes, I know about it. But I don't always know about it when I start writing about it. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, no, actually, the more I study, the more I realize that how much more there is to learn. So it's a constant process. Well, and that really makes you an artist and makes your work so good. And you are the editor of a new book, The New American Landscape, Leading Voices on the Future of Sustainable Gardening. Sustainable gardening, what we're all talking about. And I guess I'll start by asking you what your definition of the new American landscape is. Well, I think one of the interesting things about the book was with all the different perspectives, you know, ranging from, oh, goodness, prairie people like... Uh, Neil DeBall and um, meadow people like John Greenlee to specialists in soil health like Elaine Ingham. Um, you know, there are a lot of different definitions. There's a lot of room for redefining a garden more sustainably. I think it just ultimately comes down to, to using resources more economically and, and skillfully so that the garden not, not only becomes less damaging to the environment, but actually a boost to the environment. And the well, nice thing is that by doing that, it makes it easier and less expensive for the gardener. Oh, gosh, you walked into that one. Yeah, <laughs> right. I was saving that for later, but uh, uh, 
I guess to to be devil's advocate to a certain extent, uh, easier and maybe even less expensive. I, I I'm not sure. Well, I don't think it is easier. <laughs> Ultimately, I guess once you achieve a certain balance, especially if you come to a site like I have that's been degraded over the years, uh, getting it to a certain point is it's very hard. I think, and in my case, I'm dealing with well, all sorts of things, floods and sand uh, that's been left by the floods and invasive plants. And uh, in, in my case, again, it's not uh, invasive ornamental plants, but it's plants that have come in by accident uh, from Japan. In my horrifying case, the worst thing I've ever faced, worse than the floods, is Japanese stiltgrass. But uh, getting rid of that is certainly not easy. So uh, do you mean that when once you get to a point of sustainability, it's easier? I, you know, I, I think, for instance, with the stilt grass, even if you weren't trying for sustainability, I doubt that you'd want a landscape covered with stilt grass. So I suspect that would be, you know, some of these issues are going to be an issue any to anybody who cares about the, the quality and, and look and comfort of their landscape. But I think there are certain things. I mean, if you, for instance, cut back on the amount of water you lavish on the landscape, there'll be less excess water around to fuel weed growth. And similarly with, uh, with fertilizer, if you, you know, gardeners chronically over-fertilize. And if you cut back on that, that's a resource that the weeds won't be, com won't be able to compete for with your, your plants. So if you choose, I think if you choose adapted plants, and that's the whole thing, is that it, it requires a change of uh, thinking. And uh, frankly, you know, your books have been real leaders in that, looking for more adapted plants and things that were really happy in the landscape. So I think I think it will have, I mean, I've found it to have some pretty immediate effects. One of the things I've been doing is not only minimizing lawn areas, but where I want a lawn area, I've been planting um, fine fescue grasses, a, a mix that I originally learned about from Neil DeBall at Prairie Nursery. And I last summer I mowed four times. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's a big savings in time. At, in time and also uh, petroleum and, and pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe if I had to pick one thing to go after, maybe I would try to get our lawnmowers to be more efficient and certainly pollute less because they're really they have they've barely gotten into that with lawnmowers don't you think oh yeah no they for a long time they were unregulated and they're very very dirty machines um you know a, a significant portion of the total sort of smog producing chemicals that were released into the air every year came from garden equipment um so that's that can be a big difference but i you know i would really i mean there are that's one of the amazing things I found is that, that you go to a place like Rutgers and there are Texas A&M and there are grasses on the shelf that will do so much better locally with so much less care. And frankly, they've never gotten out there because it wasn't in the interest of the landscape industry to promote them. Well, I, I certainly know what you're talking about. And uh, I don't know how it happened, how we just got taken over by Kentucky bluegrass, which isn't from Kentucky. But uh, the lawn, I, uh, it's great to hear you say that because I think that a certain amount of lawn is necessary in many cases, especially in a garden. And I would love to turn a lot of my lawn over to meadow, but I've got 
things like ticks, deer ticks, and things like that. And, mm-hmm. and with a dog who isn't going to necessarily stay on the path, it's, it, some of these solutions that sound so wonderful are not so easy. And I think the hardest thing of all is going to try to convince people who are not already in your choir to uh, to look at some of these ideas, especially residential clients who want a lawn or, or who want a landscape. You know, I, I, the number of people I meet who are interested in the environment, who are clients, wealthy clients usually, who bring in some people to mow, blow and go, have absolutely no knowledge of what you're talking about and very little interest in it. And of course, the media, I, I know I'm ranting here, but it makes me so angry when if there's an endangered species with eyes, you know, you can get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. But when it's a plant and and the plants, are just, they don't care. They just develop the area. There's so little protection for endangered plants and or even acknowledgement of them and even mm-hmm. the health of the planet. And uh, fortunately, especially in California, there are, are people who I'm, I'm starting to call it conspicuous conservation, people who are interested in outdoing their neighbors by being, you know, by buying a Prius and uh, doing what they can ostentatiously to be more conscientious, which I think is great. Whatever gets you there. Uh, now, stop me. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> no, I think it's I, I agree with you 100 percent. And that's one of the actually the introduction to the book, I start by talking about I, the, the role that gardeners can play in this, which is I've never met a gardener who didn't have good intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and yet in the past, we've created so many environmental horrors. I mean, it is the case that many of the most invasive plants came into this country were deliberately brought in because we found them pretty mm-hmm. and turned them loose on the American landscape. I mean, things from Oh my goodness! Uh, water hyacinth in the south to um, Japanese knotweed—you know, there's so many, so many cases of this. And so gardeners have, and also so, such a huge amount of our potable clean water goes to landscape irrigation, and absolutely unnecessarily. So I think gardeners have a lot of cleaning, a lot of fixing up to do. But at the same time, I think gardening does make you bring you in contact with natural systems and make you aware you learn that if you do certain things, it'll destroy your soil. If, you know, you can get your garden, but if you start relying on chemical insecticides and pesticides, the garden gets hooked on it. And it's not just one, you don't just go through once to clear out all the pests. You end up having to go back and back and back. So I think it it can be a great learning experience for gardeners. And I think gardeners have a big role to play as leaders within their community, sort of, well, if you'll pardon me, grassroots leaders Mm -hmm. um, in alerting people to the the importance of of various things we need to do to deal with the environmental challenges we're facing today. Well, don't you think agriculture has caused much more damage than horticulture? The biggest irrigated crop in the United States is turf. Hmm. And think about that. And And whereas farmers typically fertilize as little as they can get away with gardeners are you know and homeowners are on the sort of what is it the four-step program you know where you fertilize you don't test the soil you don't keep track of it you just dump the stuff on whether it needs it or not i mean there's all kinds of areas from the chesapeake bay to barnegat bay to you know the uh, long island sound where nitrates from uh Lawn fertilizer runoff are, are one of the major, major problems. 
So I, I think gardeners can have a huge impact. I mean, even if you just water the way they say that you should. I mean, you look at turf books, they talk about, well, if you get a week of hot, rainless weather in the summer, you should put an inch of water all over your landscape. You know, that can add up to 100,000 acres. I mean, 100,000 gallons or more over the course of a summer. And that's something that you can do that means that you're not only, you know, paying for that water and running around dragging hoses, but you leave it in the in the drinking water system. Well, I, I know that the part of part of the book you wrote of, is on water and water use, and we have been experiencing wars that are related to oil. But uh, in the future, I can see that there may be wars related to water, and that may not be in the far distant future. That may be sooner than we think, as as water is becoming a more and more precious and limited resource. Which is news to many people that water, you know, especially in the Northeast where I am, I don't water my lawn. I don't need to because I get so much rain. But other parts of the country, having a lawn in Arizona is ludicrous. <laughs> well, and there are surprising numbers of people even in, in areas, uh, watering their lawns, even in areas where there's, you know, abundant rainfall. South Florida has chronic water shortages now, um, and it's largely because of landscape irrigation. Mm. I'm talking to Tom Christopher, the editor of a new book, The New American Landscape, Leading Voices on the Future of Sustainable Gardening. We'll be right back. Thank you for staying with us. It's Ken Drews. You're listening to Ken Drews Real Dirt. My guest today is Tom Christopher, the editor of a new book, The New American Landscape. And Tom and I have been talking about sustainability and water use. And I, I do want to point out that the book has not only these wonderful contributors, but also advice and service, we call it, uh, direct things that you can do to alter your landscape to make it more sustainable. And I wanted to talk about your guiding principles. Uh, and I'll just very quickly mention some of them, to do no harm, to leave a place better off, or at least as good as you found it, if not better off. You have the precautionary principle, be cautious in making decisions that could create risk to human environmental health, design with nature and culture to respect the local, regional, and global context, provide for future generations, that's something that I talk to so many people, and especially as they get older, they say, oh, I can't plant a tree. I won't be around to, en- to enjoy it. Well, plant that tree. <laughs> plant yeah, my mother, God bless her, was planting trees until the year she died at 83. Well, that's... And she enjoyed planting them. So, you know, she got her enjoyment out of just looking at the landscape and thinking how it would look. You know, she wasn't going to be tied down by by her age. Well, think of all the times that people say, oh, I'm too old. I don't want to plant that tree. And they're saying that for 12 years, you know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> they, they, and as you said, you know, the, the pleasure often is in watching it grow and just mm-hmm. being part of its life. And you also write about and have presented uh, understanding and reestablishing the natural processes and human activity and to foster environmental stewardship, which we were kind of talking about uh, by planting trees, but also encouraging other people to be aware of these things that you you and your guest writers have written about. Yeah, you know, some of the things, that, one of the things that was most interesting to me was the opportunities for gardening that I haven't ever exploited that are presented in this book. I mean, there's a great chapter by... Um, 
Ed Snodgrass about green roofs. Mm-hmm. And um, not only as a, as a practical solution to reducing storm runoff, but as an interesting place to start planting eventually. I mean, he, I've talked to him personally, of course, in the, during the business of writing this book, and he talked about green roofs that are turning into wildlife sanctuaries. Now, they're great places for ground-nesting birds, some of them, um, even insects, which are another creature that we ignore because they're not glamorous. Um, but there are you know, many endangered species of insects, and uh, they, some of them can you know, find, a, find a butterflies and so forth can find a home on your roof. Well, that makes me think of uh, native plants and the coevolution of plants and animals, which I know that um, Doug Ptolemy writes about, and it's, his books are incredibly popular because he has connected the eyes, as I said before, uh, the animals with the plants and how important it is to have the local plants that evolved with the local insects and other animals. Uh, but you don't say that one has to have a complete native garden necessarily which i feel no and interestingly that came that contribution to the book came from one of uh, somebody i think it was a real leader in over the years in promoting the use of native plants which is uh it's rick dark Mm -hmm. and he's you know a real expert on on native plants but he said that there are also you know exotics that have been in our landscape for a long time have proved that they behave themselves and don't run rampant and some of them are, you know, after all, uh, human landscape is not a pristine native habitat. And there's some of these exotics that coexist very well with, with native plants and serve a real function in the human landscape. Well, and uh, I, I guess being an American or wh- however I want to say it, or being a uh, greedy or I, I can't I can't live without some of those plants but I talk to uh, to nursery people and landscaping designers and and they say how are you supposed to know whether a plant is going to be invasive or not and then they claim that you have to put it in quarantine for 20 years to watch it but it's not really that hard there are certain plants that we can guess if a plant's a vine and in its native habitat it, it bolts up to the top of a tree maybe that's going to be a problem or if it's a grass that spreads and colonizes huge areas, that's something to watch out for, too. So you have to do a little bit of research. Or if it's a shrub that produces a lot of berries, berries the birds right. are going to eat and drop all over the place. That's an obvious danger. I, you're right. There are some fairly simple rules by which, you know, botanists in particular can model what's going to be probably invasive if you release it, and that you stay away from that stuff. But there are other things that are, are really quite quite safe and aren't going to be a problem. And I think one of the real messages of succeeding is that you need to be pragmatic. You know, it doesn't pay to be a dogmatist about this, you know, and adopt one system and say, oh, I'll only follow that system. I mean, personally, I'm not not really attracted to um, permaculture landscapes in terms of I don't really want to do permaculture around my house. But on the other hand, these people have really had some people like Eric Toensmeyer who who worked with this and uh, Toby Hemingway who these are two people who wrote for the book you know they have some really interesting things to say and and I did read those and learn from them well can you so, tell me really quickly what permaculture is well essentially it's it's the idea that if you model your planting on natural systems um, if you sort of create uh, an, 
your um, a copy of natural ecosystem. Um, not exactly a copy, but if you model it on that, and so that there are pl plants that fulfill all the roles that you'd find in a natural ecosystem, that then you end up with a garden that just functions like a natural ecosystem, mm -hmm. and ideally, um, it's of course not that simple, but that it can be more self-perpetuating and, and self-maintaining. Well, I found that when I started my garden, and of course I read everything, and it's what people tell you to do now too is to turn over the soil and add a lot of organic matter and and I get that and that makes some sense but I realized that the, the disturbance I caused in those early days didn't really serve me because I brought up a lot of weed seeds and and maybe in some cases I should have left things alone <laughs> or better off maybe just putting mulch on top instead of the whole idea of you know, adding so much double digging, for example, which I, I think comes into question these days. Yeah, no, I think a good motto is, you know, build up, don't dig down. Yeah, yeah. And double digging is when you dig down about a foot deep and turn over the soil and enrich it and then dig down another foot and then turn it over and put it back. And uh, it sounds delicious. And you're making this wonderful, you know, as Martha Stewart used to say, chocolate cake kind of soil. But uh, and that might be good for some crops like carrots, <laughs> but right. it's not so good for the perennial garden because, it, it, as I said, it just brought up a whole lot of weed seeds. So, and not so good for the back either. I'm too old <laughs> to do that kind of thing anymore. So oh, I'd rather, oh, I mean, when I start a new bed, what I do is spread uh, newspaper several sheets thick over the area and then bury it in mulch and um, just let, you know, after, well, first I mow down the existing vegetation mm -hmm. then I bury it and let the worms do the work. And it takes a bit longer, but it's a lot less work, and I think it's much better for the health of the soil. Well, I'm glad to say that I did that too, and also used corrugated cardboard, which we have so much because everybody's shipping everything now. But uh, corrugated cardboard served me very well, even better than newspaper, as long as you cover every single inch of it. But uh, w we are talking about your new book, The New American Landscape, and uh, it, it's very exciting. And it it might be a primer for people who want to go out and spread the good word uh it may not be a book necessarily for well it would be good for beginners uh and it would be good for people who are passionate about the health of the earth and those people could meet in the middle and then try to convince the people who are at home depot buying plants and the poisons that are sold right next to them to uh think again to take another look and 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 look and notice how well those few wild places are doing on their own and, and try to learn from them as much as possible. Well, that sounds like, that sounds like a great program. Ken. One of the things I do like about the book is that there are so many contributors and so many different perspectives. So I think for somebody who's new to thinking about sustainability, it's nice to be able to touch base with a lot of different takes on it in the same book. Well, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. Uh, believe it or not, our time has flown by. And uh, I want to suggest again that people check out the Ken Drews Real Dirt website, kendrews.com, and we'll have links to Tom and to the New American Landscape, Leading Voices on the Future of Sustainable Gardening, a very important and wonderful book edited by, it says Thomas Christopher, but I call him Tom. And thank you again for joining me. Well, thanks, Ken. It's been great touching base with you. We could have gone on talking for hours uh, about what we, what Tom and I both believe in so much. And 
I don't know. I think a transformation overnight is not very possible, but maybe to, even if you do one thing, and that one thing might be to reduce the lawn, to use the lawnmower less, or even if you need that lawn, don't go for the Kentucky bluegrass that that starts to turn brown as soon as it gets up above about 75 degrees, and then people just put water on it to cool it down because the water doesn't always get to the soil. So there are great alternatives. There's there's lots of things that you can do. Small things, big things, gigantic things in your community, at your schools. You have to get involved. We're not just talking about pretty, although a native garden can be incredibly pretty. A sustainable garden, a new American garden can be incredibly pretty. We talked about Bushes with berries, well, those can be native bushes with berries and just as attractive. Join me again next week for another edition of Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show.